discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Big League Politics reports. According to a poll conducted by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford, the United States finds itself dead last in media trust among 92,000 news consumers polled across 46 countries. Only 29% of Americans surveyed trust the media. Finland is the country with the highest degree of media trust at 65%. Rick Edmonds of Pointner noted that the Reuters Institute, quote, found some improvement in trust in nearly all the countries surveyed, probably thanks to COVID-19 coverage, but not in the U.S., where the low rating was flat year to year, end quote. Local news, in its print and broadcast incarnations, was more trusted than national news, though the study found that people are not very interested in local news. For example, out of the just 21% of American respondents that said they pay for online news, just 23% of those are subscribed to local or regional outlets. There is a great degree of polarization in the U.S., which makes conservatives very hostile towards the media. Per the study, 75% of right-leaning respondents believe that media coverage of right-wing views is biased. It's no secret that the media has a very strong liberal bent and is very anti-nationalist. At times, the liberal media will make common cause with establishment figures on the right to shut out any dissident right or nationalist discourse. Disseminating propaganda is not a recent development on the mainstream media's part. The great Marine Major General Smedley Butler observed that the mainstream press used propaganda to get people to join the armed forces en masse during World War I, a misguided conflict that did not serve any pressing U.S. interests. This same dynamic persists into the present. The good news is that the internet has decentralized information and has facilitated the rise of an alternative media ecosystem that challenges conventional corporate press narratives. BigLeaguePolitics.com Ah yes, as more people lose trust in the media, alternatives will naturally arise to fill in the void. And it looks like you've already found one of those alternatives. Right here, right now. That's right, you're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Record. Ah yes, 
the alternative media, as in the alternative to the mainstream. And as I'm sure most of you are aware, and or will learn at some point in your life, not all alternative media are created equal. Regardless, there is certainly one thing we can always count on alternative media to do, and that is at least make an attempt to report on certain things that the mainstream would avoid at all costs. In fact, it's thanks to the sources I will be pulling from today that we get to learn about a whole bunch of new studies that prove a whole bunch of things that the vast majority of us already knew, or at least suspected. A new survey shows that more police officers have retired or quit in the past year than ever before, as reported by Tyler Durden for Zero Hedge. Anybody who wasn't living under a rock last summer surely remembers the wave of anti-police sentiment that swept across the U.S. The end result is that thousands of cops from departments across the country have been quitting in droves. Now, a survey of nearly 200 police departments indicates that retirements rose 45% and resignations rose by 18% in the year between April 2020 and April 2021. The survey data were disclosed to the New York Times, which published them as the centerpiece of a lengthy story about the trials and tribulations facing police departments across the U.S. During the period in question, the NYPD saw 2,600 officers retire, compared with 1,509 the year before. Resignations in Seattle increased to 123 from 34, and retirements have risen to 96 from 43. Minneapolis, the former department of Officer Derek Chauvin, had 912 uniformed officers in May 2019. They're now down to just 699 sworn officers, and the department is struggling to find suitable recruits for its next class at the police academy. All of this is happening amid a backdrop of worsening violent crime in America's cities. According to the New York Times, one of the hardest hit urban developments is the Asheville Police Department, a hip and deep blue speck in mostly red western North Carolina. Asheville is a growing community of 90,000 tucked into the Blue Ridge Mountains. Some have described it as the Portland of the South. Asheville became the locus of anti-police protests in the area last year. In June, the city council agreed to earmark $2.1 million to start paying reparations to the black community, about 10,000 of the city's 90,000 residents. Asheville Police Chief David Zack told the New York Times that the surge in contempt from the community pushed many officers to quit. Quote, they said that we have become the bad guys, and we did not get into this to become the bad guys, end quote. The sense that the city did not back its police was inescapable. Another issue is low pay. With a starting salary around $37,000, most officers can't even afford a house in Asheville, where prices have sharply increased in recent years as more outsiders have moved to the community. One sergeant who quit after a decade on the force, who did not want his name published because of the attacks online, said last summer had chipped away at his professional pride and personal health. He could not sleep
sleep and drank too much. In September, somebody dropped a coffin laden with dirt and manure at the front door of police headquarters. Quote, the message was taking a different turn, Chief Zack said. The message was not about police reform, but we endorse violence against police, end quote. Of the more than 80 officers who left, about half found different professions and the other half different departments. New careers included construction, real estate, and pharmaceutical sales. Alec N. Doman said he ended up leaving Asheville for another position in Greenville, South Carolina. He was able to afford a house, and he described the relationship with the community as quote-unquote night and day. Quote, I can't tell you how many times I'll be in uniform and someone comes up and shakes my hand, thanking me for what I do, end quote. Meanwhile, back in Asheville, the department is worried that even more veteran officers might be heading for the exits. Chief Zack said, quote, a lot of our experience is walking out the door. End quote. One of the worst betrayals officers faced, however, came from the public officials in the city who appeared to use the officers as a political punching bag. Mayor Esther Mannheimer dropped into one daily police briefing, lauding the department's efforts. The very next day, she publicly accused the police of mishandling events, several officers said. Miss Mannheimer, mayor since 2013, said in an interview that the city was facing a quote-unquote clash of culture and that she had, quote, obviously not perfected her efforts to thread the needle of supporting law enforcement employees, but at the same time demanding and calling for needed change, end quote. For Asheville, the personnel situation is getting worse. Of seven new officers who started training in December, six have already quit. The city, meanwhile, is suffering from an increase in everything from murder to aggravated assault. A squad that investigates sexual assault and domestic violence cases have been winnowed down to a single officer. ZeroHedge.com. So there's all that, and as I alluded to earlier, it's probably no surprise to any of us who have been paying attention and or are part of the quote-unquote alternative media. However, it is some useful data and fairly vindicating. However, not nearly as much as this next bit of information. New research shows coronavirus lockdowns cost more lives than they saved. As reported by the Free Thought Project, a new study from the National Bureau of Economic Research has put yet another nail in the already closed coffin of the pro-lockdown narrative. Over the past 12 months, economic researchers, data analysts, medical professionals, and policy critics alike, as well as we journalists who've covered their findings, have all collectively reported ad nauseum the absolutely useless farce that were, and in many places still are, the use of stay-at-home orders and other lockdown policies as a means of combating COVID-19. Just within this month alone, the Free Thought Project has covered two major findings regarding the study of the impact of lockdowns. On June 5th, an MIT scientist reported a data analysis of the economic impact of the lockdown, noting that whilst it played a key contributing role to the sharp rise of unemployment, 
deployment, it did not make a significant reduction in deaths. And just days ago, on June 22nd, a Harvard University study reiterated the fact that while this policy did not save lives, it simultaneously decimated the economy. While modern robber barons such as Zuckerberg, Gates, and Bezos saw their portfolios expand exponentially, this was yet another report that, much like the aforementioned, did not receive national headlines from the corporate media. Now, this most recent study from the NBER compounds these findings even further. After analyzing data from 44 countries and all 50 states, they have found that not only have these restrictions not saved lives and greatly exacerbated the destruction of the working class, but have in fact resulted in an increase of excess mortality. At the end of the day, they cost more lives than they saved. Among the findings for the study, the authors conclude, in every region the study observed, it found that the utilization of stay-at-home mandates resulted in either no change or increases in excess deaths. In every U.S. state, the study found either, quote, no change in excess deaths, or in many U.S. states, spikes in excess deaths following the implementation of shelter-in-place policies, end quote. Countries and states that had longer-duration stay-at-home mandates were found to have had higher excess deaths. Countries or states that implemented stay-at-home mandates earlier did not have lower excess deaths than countries and states that were slower to put restrictions in place. States did not see decreases in excess deaths until 20 weeks after the lockdown policies were brought into effect. And an exception was found in the countries Australia, Malta, and New Zealand, and the island of Hawaii, where the shelter-in-place orders that were issued showed a slight decrease in excess deaths. Unfortunately, reports like this are becoming commonplace among those who quote-unquote follow the science, that is, those of us who actually do so rather than simply claiming to, only to then regurgitate whatever narrative is parroted by propagandists. These consequences and much more have already been recounted in a previous piece for the Free Thought Project. In January, we covered a report from the Oxford Committee for Famine Relief demonstrating the impact of worldwide lockdowns and their far-reaching socio-economic ramifications. Chiefly among them, the devastating nature in which these policies have been found to have undone the last 30 years of progress made against extreme poverty. More so, that hundreds of millions of people are now being pushed towards famine as a direct result of lockdowns. Most shockingly of all, the pandemic projection models, which were used as the justification for global lockdowns were found to be completely inaccurate and unreliable from the start. They were so flawed, the Imperial College professor who designed said projections was fired from his position for disregarding his own data and breaking restriction. These are just a few of the so-called unintended consequences to human health and life that came with shutting down the entire world on a whim. Not once did our pundits or politicians ever encourage strengthening the building blocks of basic health, such as nutrition or exercise. They didn't mandate an uptake in vitamins and nutrients, fresh air, sunlight, fruits and vegetables, 
proper sleep, clean water, or extra cardiovascular conditioning. None of the strategies that are actually capable of naturally strengthening the human immune system were mentioned. Instead, they went straight for the most absurd authoritarian measures, measures that in many cases actually obstruct those very same building blocks for a naturally healthy body. The consequences were monstrous. In addition to the financial impacts, other costs of life are skyrocketing. It has now been thoroughly documented that lockdowns have led to a drastic rise in all of the following. Drug use and subsequent overdose deaths are increasing at an alarming rate. Deaths by suicide are on the rise both nationally and internationally. More heartbreaking still, what is now being referred to as an epidemic of child suicide as the self-inflicted deaths of children is now on the rise, and as well as causing a noticeable increase in both domestic violence and child abuse, including sexual assault the world over, as human rights groups have warned that human trafficking has surged during lockdowns. All the while, the world's poor and working class are decimated as wealthy elitists and political predators capitalize upon the largest transfer of wealth and power in human history. To be quite blunt, these policies should be regarded as a crime against humanity. It goes well beyond a nauseating example of government malfeasance. Policymakers were rash, reactionary, and criminally negligent. Blood is on their hands and a lot of it. We should all be quite frank about it. The decisions of lawmakers to enact these policies is directly contributory to the deaths of countless people. They are culpable, and liability should most certainly be applicable. Manslaughter is generally defined as the unintentional killing of another human being. So, while democide may not fit the bill due to a seeming lack of intent behind these killings, what does one even call mass state-sponsored criminally negligent manslaughter. Is there even a word for it? If not, someone ought to think of one quick, because there are a lot of government officials that deserve to be charged with it. The Freethoughtproject.com. Again, chances are, sadly, no surprise to most of us. However, this next one involves something that you may be sitting on the fence about. I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it, but Hey, you know me. I believe in the old Bill Cooper credence. Read everything, listen to everybody, etc. So, let's check this out, shall we? Arjun Walia, writing for Collective Evolution, reports, Working in independent media is not what it used to be. During the beginning of the pandemic, we've been severely punished by third-party Facebook fact-checkers for having discussions about the possible lab origins of COVID-19. Facebook has already removed at least 16 million pieces of content from its platform and added warnings to approximately 167 million others. YouTube has removed nearly 1 million videos related to, according to them, quote, dangerous or misleading COVID-19 medical information, end quote. Fast forward to today and the the lab origin debate has hit the mainstream media after they have changed their mind about it being a quote-unquote
quote-unquote conspiracy theory not worthy of discussion. Now let's talk about ivermectin, another highly censored discussion. For over a year, you could not write about ivermectin without being subjected to the wrath of Facebook fact-checkers, unless of course the narrative shared in the article was that ivermectin is completely useless for treating COVID-19. To be honest, this article may also be flagged as quote-unquote false, misleading, or missing context, despite the fact that it's quoting a study that was good enough to be published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. This is confusing to many, especially journalists, because many publications, doctors, and scientists have been urging the need to examine the use of ivermectin to treat patients ill with COVID-19. At the start, we don't know if something is useful, but when we test and examine results, we can find out. Journalists help share those stories with the world, but instead, that discussion has been completely shut down, censored, and again labeled a quote-unquote conspiracy theory. The silver lining is that this censorship alone has served as a catalyst for people to really question what's going on here. How can we as a society truly examine whether or not something can be useful for COVID-19 if we are not even allowed to discuss it openly and transparently? What type of thinking is leading us to accept this level of censorship? To quote Dr. Vinay Prasad, a hematologist, oncologist, and associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, in an op-ed for MedPage Today on November 30th, 2020, quote, Over the last few months, I have seen academic articles and op-eds by professors retracted or labeled quote-unquote fake news by social media platforms. Often, no explanation is provided. I am concerned about this heavy-handedness and, at times, outright censorship." End quote. A new meta-analysis recently published in the American Journal of Therapeutics states the following, quote, The anti-parasitic ivermectin with antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties has now been tested in numerous clinical trials. Moderate certainty evidence finds that large reductions in COVID-19 deaths are possible using ivermectin. Using ivermectin early in the clinical course may reduce numbers progressing to severe disease. The apparent safety and low cost suggests that ivermectin is likely to have a significant impact on SARS-CoV-2 pandemic globally. End quote. This isn't the first time ivermectin has been empirically supported. For example, as the meta-analysis points out, a review by the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance summarized findings from 27 studies on the effects of ivermectin for the prevention and treatment of COVID-19 infection, concluding that ivermectin, quote, demonstrates a strong signal of therapeutic efficacy against COVID-19, end quote. Despite this fact, the National Institutes of Health in the United States is of the opinion that, quote, there are insufficient data to recommend either for or against the use of ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19, end quote, and the WHO recommends against its use outside of clinical trials. According to Facebook fact checker Health Feedback, quote, there are design flaws and methodological limitations of the clinical studies that support the use of ivermectin 
ivermectin against COVID-19. Overall, given the lack of evidence supporting ivermectin's efficacy and safety, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration doesn't recommend the use of ivermectin for COVID-19. The Infectious Diseases Society of America also doesn't recommend the use of ivermectin against COVID-19. On the 22nd of March 2021, the European Medicines Agency released a statement advising against the use of ivermectin for prevention or treatment of COVID-19 outside randomized clinical trials, end quote. Yet, the authors of the new meta-analysis used the following methods, quote, We searched the reference list of included studies and of two other 2021 literature reviews of ivermectin, as well as the recent WHO report, which included analysis of ivermectin. We contacted experts in the field for information on new and emerging trial data. In addition, all trials registered on clinical trial registries were checked, and trial lists of 39 ongoing trials or unclassified studies were contacted to request information on trial status and data where available. Many preprint publications and unpublished articles were identified from the preprint servers MedRxiv and Research Square and the International Clinical Trials Registry platform. This is a rapidly expanding evidence base, so the number of trials are increasing quickly. Reasons for exclusion were recorded for all studies excluded after full-text review. End quote. Other key findings from the paper? Quote, Meta-analysis of 15 trials assessing 2,438 participants found that ivermectin reduced the risk of death by an average of 62% compared with no ivermectin treatment. There is also evidence emerging from countries where ivermectin has been implemented. For example, Peru had a very high death toll from COVID-19 early on in the pandemic. Based on observational evidence, the Peruvian government approved ivermectin for use against COVID-19 in May 2020. After implementation, death rates in eight states were reduced between 64 and 91 percent over a two-month period. Another analysis of Peruvian data from 24 states with early ivermectin deployment has reported a drop in excess deaths of 59 percent at 30-plus days and of 75 percent at 45 plus days, end quote. The paper is quite detailed and goes much more in-depth than the summary I have provided. Be sure to review it for more information and if you want a deeper understanding of their findings. It's also noteworthy to mention that the University of Oxford in the UK has added ivermectin to the Platform Randomized Trial of Treatments in the Community for Epidemic and Pandemic Illnesses, aka PRINCIPLE, study for the treatment of COVID-19. PRINCIPLE is a large clinical trial designed to assess potential COVID-19 therapies for non-hospitalized patients, including at-home recovery, who are at higher risk of progressing to serious illness. As reported by Clinical Trials Arena, quote, Ivermectin is a broad-spectrum antiparasitic used commonly to treat parasitic infections worldwide. The drug, which is known to exhibit antiviral properties, reduced SARS-CoV-2 replication in laboratory studies. In small pilot studies, early use of ivermectin was able to lower viral load and the duration of symptoms in some mild COVID-19 patients, end quote. Ivermectin has not been the only therapeutic to show promise. There have been many others, including intravenous 
intravenous vitamin C, for example. Yet, we're not allowed to discuss these, nor have any scientific discussion about it. In the mainstream, these types of treatments have been completely ridiculed. Why? CollectiveEvolution.com Why? Why indeed? Do you really want to know why, folks? I'll tell you why. And then some. On the next episode of The Daily Ruckus. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Tuesday, June 29, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.